scripture. So we want to finish our time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This apostle, the apostle Paul, has been writing this letter to a group of people in Thessalonica, a church that he planted, but then had to leave before he was ready to. And he writes this letter as a word of encouragement, a word that simply says, you're doing great, I see you excelling, do so more and more. And he passes on an encouragement to these people that I hope one day someone could even pass on to us about the life of our church and say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Look at what God's doing around you. Excel in this. Lean into that. Be rooted in that even more. So beginning in verse 12, he closes this this entire book after he's given us this kind of theological background this this as is his custom in most of his epistles he he writes a letter that lays a groundwork that's doctrinal this is what you ought to believe and now therefore this is what you ought to do so beginning in verse 12 of first thessalonians chapter 5 we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of god in christ for you do not quench the spirit do not despise prophecies but test everything hold fast what is good abstain from every form of evil now May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May God bless the reading and the hearing of this word. For some of you, I don't want you to miss the victory that just happened. If you've been hanging out with us for the last several weeks, you just finished reading a book of the Bible. That is a big deal. That is not a small thing. That is a massive achievement. That is something that on a regular basis, I, be, I hope, I pray, especially even as you think about this year to come, that you set apart time, that this is not the only time that you sit under it, but this becomes a regular occurrence for you. And so for some of you, this is a big deal. You just achieved kind of a massive victory, right? I made it through one book. He wraps up his letter to these people and then offers these specific encouragements specific commands and it seems like maybe just a hodgepodge of disconnected commands but instead he is very specific about how what he has taught us for the last several chapters ought to look in the life of the church now i want to encourage you with these exact same words don't forget as he tells the do's and don'ts at the end of this particular book don't forget he spent the last several chapters saying how much he loves them saying that he, he cares for them, he's invested in them, how much he misses them, how much he wishes he could come to them. And he gives, them, gives a, a, a set of things that might hopefully mark this church amongst the world, but also even mark our church. And here's why I would put it. A healthy church is identified by how they relate to God, how they relate to godly leadership, how they relate to one another. Trusting in God alone to empower them to live a holy life as they anticipate the coming of Jesus. A healthy church looks like this list of directives at the end of chapter 5. Now don't miss this. This is what we've been saying over and over and over again. First Thessalonians, as well as the entire New Testament, as well as the rest of the Bible, is a church-centric document. And so, 
We want to push on this. There is no picture of following Jesus apart from the church. There is no picture of biblical obedience apart from the church. Every single letter, including this one, is written to a church, or it's written to a leader about a church. Or at the end of this entire book, we see the victory comes to the church. Jesus gives us the preview in the Gospels that the gates of hell are encroaching, evil is encroaching, but it evidently will not prevail against the church. This is a church-centric document. So part of what I'm saying, if, if, if you can't think of people, actual people who call themselves Christians who are part of a local church, as you begin to apply these things, I want a holy frustration to well up in you. I hope you begin to be provoked like, oh man, I can't be obedient to this unless I start to live this out in a local church. If you begin to think of a way to live this out apart from a life locked up into the local church, living under the covenant and care of those people, I hope, I hope you begin to feel silly. Like, oh, and hope someone goes like lovingly in the name of Jesus, smacks you in the back of the head and says like, that's not, that's, you're, you're doing it wrong. These directives that he gives only make sense in the life of the church. And he gives a picture of what the local church looks like. They relate to God in a particular way. That is through Jesus Christ. They relate to their leaders in a particular way. This is important because we have a, in our a current political climate, like, you know, the, the approval rating in Congress at, right now is basically boiled down to like their families and their moms. No one else approves them at the moment, right? So we have, a, we have a tenuous relationship with leadership and authority, not the church. We have a different relationship. And then we have a different relationship with one another. In a very polarized climate, we, we, we're willing to be polarized with respect to good and evil, not with respect to everything else. So here he says, we ask you, verse 12, let's walk through this together. We ask you, we ask you brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The first picture he gives us is of the responsibility and relationship in the, of the people of the church with their leadership with their godly appointed leadership. And what you find here is that leaders who take their calling seriously start to look a different way. Leaders who, leaders who take their calling seriously look differently in three different avenues, their work and the way they lead and the way they admonish. These leaders who take their calling seriously work, lead, and admonish. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you, literally, in the Lord, like on top of you or, or ruling over you. Now, this is interesting because a quick crash course in ecclesiology, or that is the nature and character of the church in the New Testament, what we believe about the church is there are offices in the church. And we see there seems to be three main offices. The office of elder, pastor, bishop, these words used interchangeably. The office of deacon or literally servant or waiter or waitress. And then the office of member. And these things work together. And apart from having these things, you'll always be lacking. Now, now interestingly enough, in other letters, he speaks to this office, this people who are over you, specifically as elder, pastor, or bishop. But not here. And this is what I find to be the most profound, at least for us, right? So, so in the life of our church, right now in our church, we have one pastor, elder, bishop, and I'm it. But our desire is to raise up godly qualified men to meet these requirements that the New Testament lays out that will care for your souls. They will step in the gap for your souls, love you and care for you. Remember what he described them as earlier, right? People who care, labor night and day, like a nursing mother, like a father exhorting and encouraging their child. That's what we desire for. And, and it's interesting, he doesn't refer to them specifically as elders. Now, here's what I think is probably happening. If you'll flip back to Acts chapter 17 and 18, you'll see Paul's journey through planting this church here in Philippi and, in, and then Thessalonica and then on to Berea. He does what any good preacher would do, and he makes a bunch of people mad. So mad that they riot and run Paul out of town. And he's forced to leave this baby church to begin to walk on its own much before he was ready to leave them. And so it's possible that Paul's writing this letter even only months after he planted the church. 
So I think specifically he doesn't refer to these people as elder, pastor, or bishop like he does in these other letters because they probably didn't exist yet. And this is powerful. This, this is unique. This church was, I mean, this church was a baby church most likely. It only been in existence for a few months. In fact, he probably hadn't had a chance to watch people closely enough to, to begin to call them and appoint them as elders. And so instead, what he apparently did is he left some people on the runway, as we would say. People he said, look, these are, your, these are some leaders and that's interesting because they'd probably all been Christians for the same amount of time at this particular point, right? That this church started, there wasn't anyone who was, I don't know, necessarily more mature or, or further along in understanding Scripture and understanding who God is and what He'd done for them in Christ. And so it's kind of a, a, a team of peers here, and he apparently left some people in leadership, and they probably were struggling to respect them. That's why he points this out. They're probably having a hard time seeing some of these others as leaders because they'd all kind of joined the church and come to be a part of this church at the same time. But he says, and this is where I think it's pretty powerful, this kind of especially applies to us, especially if he's talking to a church that may not have a structure built yet. It may not have the, these biblical aspects of a church, these offices in place. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The first thing that we notice about these leaders is that they work. They genuinely work. They take their calling seriously and work. If we're talking about a pastor or even a person who begins to feel the call, the weight of the other people's souls, they feel the burden of people around them, a pastor works. Recall in chapter 2, I just mentioned it. He says, you know that we labored night and day like a nursing mother. Well, that's a 24-hour job, right? Some of you are like, amen. Now, on the other hand, I remember Robert Murray Machane, uh, a Scottish minister. He died at the age of 29. And he turned to his friend who was sitting with him on his deathbed, and he said, I have killed the horse, and now I can't deliver the message. That is, he had ridden the horse in this metaphor particularly hard in such a way that the horse was dead and he could no longer feel his duties as a pastor. So, a pastor works. Now, as I walk through each of these things, there's, there's two things I want you to do. Two things. The first is I want you to, as you see this admonition specifically for what biblical leadership looks like, we saw this in chapter 2 and 3, my first my first request is that you would just simply see this as a call to pray for me. That's the first thing. If I'm, if I'm going to be an effective, a trustworthy and faithful leader, it is only by God's grace that that will happen. And I want you on a regular basis to beg the Lord for this to happen. On my behalf and on your behalf, pray for these things. Pray that this is a, a true and faithful labor. But the second thing is that I want you to pray that this would even now begin to inspire people around us and people would take upon the mantle and calling to make disciples for the glory of Christ. That we would see like, we have influence, friends. You have influence. You can act like you don't. You can squander it, but you have influence. What you do with it is the question. And my prayer, the second prayer, if you're not just praying for me, but pray that this would start to happen in our church. And these marks would start to be visible in the life of people who, for example, are gospel community leaders or simply people who are caretakers. They work. They work hard. They invest heavily into people. They work very, very hard. the respect they have apparently earned is due to the investment of time and energy into people. This is important. The way we say it is this, uh, in the life of our church, is a great leader is not made by what they say yes to. A great leader is made by what they say no to. And the people who will have healthy and faithful influence in the like, life of the church are not people who always say yes to everything that pops up. They're the people who most adamantly say no to that which is not valuable. Let me start at the top of the list. It's called Sabbath. Remember, we talked about this. We have a different relationship to work. A biblical leader will say no for at least 24 hours a week 
and say, I'm going to rest in the finished work of Christ. Think about what a, think about what a powerful testimony that says to the world. I'm going to do nothing productive today. In the eyes of the, in the, eyes of the world, I'm going to do nothing productive, and yet I am completely loved. Don't miss the miracle of Sabbath rest to say, I'm going to, I'm going to do nothing productive. Everyone watching me will think that person is doing nothing. And yet, in the midst of doing nothing, I will be completely loved. This is the good news. We rest in the finished work of Christ. We look and say, look, I could continue to do things or I could stop. And even in my patterns of living, I could say no for the sake of simply existing and thriving under the good gift of God's grace in Christ. Don't miss it. You, you, you deserve, just because you're busy doesn't mean you're necessarily faithful. You may be completely disobedient. If you can't tell your work from your rest, this is a place where I want to encourage you to repent. And this is what biblical leadership looks like. Not by saying yes to all sorts of things, but by saying no. And this is what it means for you. If you've got a gospel community leader who's currently caring for you, the strength of their care is not in just simply saying yes to you, but it's saying no to all the other things they could be doing than investing in you. And the reason you'd be wanting to follow these people is not just because they've said yes and piled their calendar and added you to it. The reason they're worth following is that they've been willing to say no to so many other things because they love you and care for you. And that kind of labor starts to stand out that kind of labor starts to, as he says, deserve respect. You respect that person. Godly leaders begin to lead out of a a deep sense of conviction and calling such that they say no to lesser things for the sake of this calling to a higher and greater and eternal thing. Second thing they do, not only do they work, but they lead. It says literally they are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So a biblical leader leads, sees themselves as been entru- they're entrusted with people who are under them. Colossians 1.28 puts it this way. Paul says, we proclaim Christ, admo- and we'll see this next word in a second here, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. That is, they have a charge over people around them. The way we talk about this in the life of the church is this. If you see the need, you have heard the call. If you see the need, you have heard the call. If you look around in the life of our church and you're like, boy, they really need to grow in this area. Guess who is calling you to do that? I share this on a regular basis. I was a pastor of an established church and a lovely lady came to me and she was like, pastor, uh, the sanctuary, the plants in the sanctuary are dusty and filthy. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a plant person, wouldn't have seen that. Um, I kind of equate it like, look, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the pilot here, my job is to make sure we don't crash. I'm not saying you don't need peanuts, I'm just saying I might not be the person to go get them for you, okay? And so I was like, look, I've never heard anyone say anything about this. You're the first person I've heard that has a keen awareness for this. And I said, look, you might be the best possible person to take this over. I'll give you a budget. I'll resource you. I'll give you everything you need. This might be a place where you can really serve other people and maybe our church could really benefit from you leading in this area because you clearly have an eye more keen to this than I do. And she's like, no. What she really meant was, I'm a consumer. I pay my dues. You do it for me. Not so. Not so in the church where we really believe that we have influence over others. So when you see the need, you've heard the call. Repent of that consumer tendency like, oh, this church is blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it is. That's why you're here. We might not even know it. Maybe God blessed us with you to begin to see yourself as over that. Without it, this will not work. This will not work. There's lots of nice places around us in this neighborhood you can be a consumer in. This group of people is not one. A biblical leader not only works and says no to things for the sake of investing highly in eternal things, but they also see themselves as entrusted with care, 
as over certain things. They have a sense of responsibility. Now, don't miss that. This, this doesn't mean that in and of themselves, uh, a, a leader, a pastor has any sort of influence. I share this with you on a regular basis. The only real authority I have over you is when I'm holding this, right? Like, if I'm, t- look, I think this, th- look, look here, this is where this is leading us. With conviction, you do this. But apart from that, I don't have any real authority. And that's really interesting because most people just want good advice. And, they, and you'll regularly come to me and you're like, authoritatively speak in these particular things. And I'm like, well, this says this. And they're like, no, 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 tell me your opinion. It's like, no, 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 this says this. I don't have any other authority. And that's a good thing for you. If I had any real authority apart from this, if I had any really ability like, to change and have power, I mean, there'd be no more Green Bay Packers. Let's be honest about that. <laughs> yeah, but thankfully for most of you, I don't have that authority. By God's grace, I only have authority. I can tell you what's wise and unwise. But this is the power I have. It's an entrusted authority. None of my own. I have no intrinsic authority. It's only when I start with, say, like, thou shalt not kill. You know, oh, wow, that's coming from somewhere else. That's a derived authority. And the rest of it, it may be helpful. Hopefully it's wise. Maybe it's godly counsel that's applying the scripture correctly but you can dismiss it jesus says on a regular i mean more than once like look my words will not pass away and thankfully my words the words of jonathan will pass away the only words that i will speak that'll have eternal value is when i'm quoting the lord's that's what it means to have an, a derived and trusted authority. I'm, I'm not over you in any way. It's just that I'm an under-shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the senior pastor. The way we say this in the life of our church, there's only one man who gets every single thing he wants in the life of this church, and it's not me. It's Jesus. He's the only one who gets all the worship, all the glory. If you find yourself saying, I don't like that song, too bad. It wasn't written for you. It was written for Jesus. And we see ourselves drastically, infinitely under him, caring for the people around us. It's a good thing. It protects you from people by pointing to Jesus. It's an entrusted care. And the third thing, it says that they admonish. Respect those who labor. They're over you. Again, not in and of themselves. Notice that. They're not over you in and of themselves. They're over you in the Lord. And they admonish you. And you to esteem them because they do this. And this is an interesting word. I've got to kind of take a, like, a pastor admonishes. It carries the idea that if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to have problems. Literally, the word means to caution or to counsel against something. It means to reprove or to scold. Not in an evil manner, but out of goodwill to urge towards a duty, to remind to rebuke, to, sim- to censure, or to upbraid. A pastor, a biblical leader, admonishes. It's the idea that it's not simply pedantic, it's not academic, it's not just data, it's not just information, it is instruction with a view towards life change, toward correcting someone in Christ-likeness. This is what this means. If you've never heard me scold you, then I'm not doing this right. If I'm not scold, if if at some point you haven't felt like, whoa, he seems to be provoking me in this area, then I'm not doing this right. I'm certainly not the one who admonishes you. You shouldn't esteem me. But here's the thing. If I behold God and his word, and then I behold people in the world, I'd be a fool not to, not to notice and mention the disparity. Right? If, I, if I behold God in his word, and I'm like, wow, this is how majestic God is and how beautiful the church is meant to be, and then I look at the people in the world, and I just go, yeah, they're doing great. You guys are awesome. Don't change a thing. That's a failure to admonish. And so on a regular basis, we ought to be the people who gladly behold the glory of God in Christ and then behold the frailty and failure of humans and go, we need help. And that will feel like scolding because on a regular basis, while you're in failure and saying, I'm not good enough, instead of like your friends who say, oh no, you are, I'm the person who goes, you're right. You're worse than you think. This is what this means. 
I am regularly after your self-esteem. You'll find yourself, well, he, man, he, he just doesn't seem to think highly of me, and he, and he wants me to not think highly of myself. Yes! Yes! I want to erode away your self-esteem and build up your Jesus-esteem. I want to pry your self-esteem out of your hands. And every time you fail, I want to hand you something better. When we behold God in his goodness, and then we behold people in their not-that-goodness, there ought to be a sense in which we go, okay, we need to push someone along. We need to admonish, remind someone. I love this. This is where the gospel is so beautiful. It's so simple that it could be understood by a child, such that Jesus says, look, ultimately, you don't need to become like a seminary-trained pastor to enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to become like a child who sees us for what it is. God is good. We are not. We need help. Jesus, thank God, died in our place. Simple, so simple. But don't miss that that causes us to admonish. That means that if we behold God and then we behold people, we ought to regularly at least acknowledge the disparity. We look to the perfection of God and then we look at our own failures and we long for a solution. And on a regular basis, this warning, this reminding, this rebuke, this scold is pointing us to our need to je- for Jesus. You ought to look at yourself and in your broken and worthless self-esteem, be reminded of your need for Jesus such that when you look at him and f- receive the esteem that he grants you freely and graciously, not of your own merit, in fact, quite the opposite, but he freely grants you this such that even a child can receive it as a gift. And that will come across as admonishment. We will push people. This means that, you know, probably one of two people, you'll either on one side of the room and you're like, yeah, stick it to them, right? And on the rest of them, you're like, ooh, that's harsh. And I was like, you're both wrong. You're not seeing that ultimately our hope is in Christ and the disparity between God's holiness and our sinfulness digs a crater that God has fully filled sufficiently in Christ. So that means if you're on this side and you haven't, like, if you haven't hurt someone's feelings in the name of Jesus recently, uh, be careful, all right? But on the other hand, if you haven't, if you're on this side and you haven't, like, apologized in the name of Jesus recently, you're probably doing the same thing. Just opposite, opposite end of the spectrum. Same pride. We point to Jesus. This is what admonition looks like. And we ought to esteem the people. Note that. Esteem them, verse 13, very highly in love because of this work. That means if someone has the courage to risk the idol of approval, to come say, hey, I love you, and I see something that doesn't look like Jesus, what do you do? You fight back? No. We esteem them. Say, thank you. Thanking you for loving the Lord so much that you were willing to put our friendship at risk for the sake of my soul. But then you see the response. If that's what leaders look like, they work and lead and admonish, then followers who take their calling seriously serve in loving relationship and pursue a life of loving devotion. And this list, he starts talking about the church again. Be at peace amongst yourselves. This is a partnership, right? If there's not a sense of, of trust in leadership and trust in followership, then this will fail. Be at peace Verse 14, we urge you brothers, so you hear that, that word, now he's, now he's talking back to the church to do these particular things. But the motivation we see in verse 13, esteem them very highly in love. So first, they serve in loving relationship. This means that the way we operate is marked by a radical love. Now he already, I won't go too far into this because he already told us this, right? This love that exists between uh, leaders and followers in the church or just people in the church loving and caring for their brother and sister will look like, as we saw a few chapters ago, a nursing mother carefully and tenderly, most beautiful and most, like the sweetest possible thing you could imagine in the world. That's what this looks like. We admonish as a, as a, as a nursing mother would. But then we also admonish like a, an encouraging father would. There's a loving relationship to, to this. And this means we, we have a radical view of love, right? Remember we talked about this. Like if you, if you love, in quotes, something just because it benefits you, you don't love it at all. You're using it. Love is when you lay down, and this word here, agape, is a, a godlike love, a sacrificial, divine, holy love. 
It's when you lay down your own will for something. You sacrifice for it. That's a powerful love. It's not a love that simply looks at the benefits that you perceive to be getting. That's not love at all. That's as consumeristic as possible. That's as entitled as one could be in a relationship. It's the kind of relationship in which you say, I'm for this person even when it costs me. That's the kind of love that exists in the life of the church. You see this in the book of Acts, right? They were laying down their possessions. They were laying down all sorts of things for the sake of building one another up. That's the relationship. They're in loving relationship with leadership and also with others. And then he gives a list of the things that loving devotion in the life of a follower of Jesus, a member of a church, looks like. So you ready for the list? Here we go. We urge you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. So this means when we find people being irresponsible, we warn them. We find people who are being discouraged, we comfort them. Point them toward, be careful, remember, our encouragement isn't, you're great, that's, don't, don't hear that. Our encouragement is, he's great, right? So we comfort the discouraged, we help the weak. We bear, as the law of Christ, the book of Ephesians tells us, we bear one another's burdens. And then we're patient in all of these circumstances. I love that little blanket statement just thrown in there. Be patient. With who? Everyone. What about, yes. What about, yes. And then the last thing he says, we refuse to retaliate. Uh, This one, this one's powerful. What would it look like to be a group of people who lovingly serve one another and pursue devotion to Christ such that we would relinquish our rights to vengeance? I mean, isn't that what forgiveness is? Doesn't that overflow from this good news of what God has done for us? Aren't we the people that deserved God's wrath and yet we get together on a Sunday morning and other times and rejoice? We see here, we don't minimize the sin. In fact, we know that God takes sin very seriously. And we know that if you, even right now, if you're like, there's someone in, you think of and you're like, you're crying out for justice. You're like, God, destroy that person. We look to the cross and we remember there is no one who takes sin more seriously. And if you find yourself saying, well, this is archaic, but even in your own heart, you probably feel like blood must be shed. We look to the cross and we realize there is blood that is shed. Oh, but thanks be to God, it's not the blood of the sinner. No one takes that sin more seriously. No one takes vengeance more seriously than our just and perfect God. But we also find that no one takes grace more seriously. We look at the cross and we're reminded that it wasn't us that paid this penalty. So when you know that, you begin to let go of the desire for vengeance. Someone must pay. We're just the radical group of people who believe Jesus paid it all. So there's this list. We, we start to look a certain way. I, I'll only kind of, I'll let this, I, I'll let, kind of leave this there and I want you to meditate on this and think on this and, and begin to reflect on this and let this come out. But just notice that he at least encourages a, a sensitivity to the work of the Holy Spirit in what you do. Right? So I talk about this way like a coach. Uh, you know, a good coach knows when to say try harder and a good coach knows when to say take a rest. And the worst thing you can tell someone who needs to try harder rest. You've just made them lazy. But the worst thing you can tell someone who needs to rest is try harder. And notice what he says. There's there's not a one-stop shop for this whole thing. There's a list of ways in which we love one another enough to know. Look, I, I see you being idle. And there's that word again. And we admonish. I see you being faint-hearted or timid or I see you with with no confidence in Christ, and we speak gospel truth. God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't left you. He's for you in Christ. That's exactly what we celebrate Christmas. We see someone who is weak, who is buckling under their burden, and we say, hey, is there a way I can carry some of this? Can you maybe let go of some of this and receive the burden of Jesus that is easy, that is, that is a yoke that is simple to carry? 
and we do so with patience. We saw that last week, a sense of contentment. Even though things are difficult, I'm content in what Christ has done for me such that now I can exercise patience. And then we get to one of my favorite parts in the entirety of the Bible. On a regular basis, people come to me with heavy decisions, right? They're like, I'm in a time of transition. What do I do? What's God's will for me? And if some of you know this, you're regularly frustrated because I answer with this. You're like, what's God's will? And I'm like, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't miss that. It's a higher calling, a higher and broader picture of God's will. And I want you to repeat after me, all right? So just let's do this together, okay? We're going to learn this. You're going to learn three verses all at once. Repeat after me. Rejoice always. always. Pray without ceasing. ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. circumstances. For this is the will of God God. in Christ Jesus for you. All right, you're gonna, you maybe can have to read this to get through it, but let's do it again. Repeat after me. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. What if something really bad happens to you? But this is the will of God for you, okay? What if? What if? Like the worst possible circumstance comes upon you. And we regularly be like, what do I do? What do I do? And I want to encourage you, this is the will of God for you. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Some, you'll come and ask, like, well, do I take this job in Omaha or do I take this job in this whatever? And I want to encourage you, that is not God's will for you. Are you rejoicing in it? No. Well, then it doesn't matter. You can be bitter and downtrodden anywhere. Are you being grateful for what you have? Are you giving thanks in every possible circumstance? No, then it doesn't matter. You really don't care about God's will. You just want to do what you want to do and you want him to stamp it with his approval. Are you giving thanks in all of those circumstances? Because if not, if you're not rejoicing and praying and giving thanks, then you're already wandering and doing your own thing. And I would encourage you, just begin to think about this. What would it look like to be a person that even in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficult circumstances, you're a person marked by rejoicing, by fervent and faithful prayer, and radical gratitude. And when you start thinking in those terms, then you realize, oh snap, I could be in God's will anywhere. All circumstances? All circumstances. Don't miss, this is a powerful and simple thing here. Don't overcomplicate this one. Don't overcomplicate. Resist the temptation when someone says, hey, what should I do today? Resist the temptation to say, well, you need to go to work and go, hey, I don't know. How about you rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances? Isn't that different? Doesn't that make us look different? This is the will of God. Verse 19, he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Lists a whole bunch of stuff here that would make us look really different in the world. I'm going to give just a, a quick note on one of them. It says, do not quench the Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit of God is testifying to Jesus Christ in and through all sorts of different circumstances, so much so that 1 Corinthians 12, 3, remember, tells us that no one can say that Jesus is cursed under the power of the Holy Spirit, but no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So this is good. This means that the fact that you're not throwing chairs at me right now means that the Holy Spirit's at work in you. The fact that you're not furious about me talking about Jesus means that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to him. It's powerful. This is the most amazing miracle ever. More amazing than any other miracle. God called your dead light, dead, dead soul to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that, that brought Jesus back to life has brought you to life, and now you hear this word. He says, don't quench that. Don't make light of that. And so therefore, you see two things thrown together. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Now, I'm not going to pick a fight here on spiritual gifts at work in the life of the church. But here's what I am going to say. It gives us two very important ditches on either side of this road. Don't quench the spirit and despise prophecies, but also test everything and hold fast to what is good. We as a church desire to be this. 
Like we regularly pray for and long for the Holy Spirit to manifest himself in powerful ways. But we always know that when he does, we love Jesus more. So just for some of you, this may make sense. If you, if you haven't been like around the church a lot, or you haven't been raised in the church, you're, you're in such good shape. You don't have any of this baggage. But for the rest of you, someone's probably come up to you at some point in your life who called himself a Christian and said something like, I have a word for you. Or God told me to tell you. And you cringed. <laughs> right? You're like, really? Wow. And he says, don't despise that. Hear it out, but then test it. Hold fast to what you know to be true. Hear it out. Somebody says, man, I've I've got a word for you. I've got something to tell you. Don't immediately quench the possibility that the Holy Spirit might have a word for you. It's probably from the most unlikely of places. I know. People who speak the word of the, like, spiritual words over me, prophecy about what I ought to do or what happens next, have not been the things I've, they're not people I trust, not people I even respect. And God puts them there to humble me and go like, hmm, you see this truth? So don't despise that. But on the other hand, so some of you got, just got excited, right? You're like, yeah, I'm going to speak a word. And you thought of all the things the Holy Spirit told you to tell all your friends, all right? Okay. Not going to quench that. Not going to despise you or your prophecy. But I am going to test it. I am going to hold fast to what the Bible tells me to be true. We talk about this on a regular basis. When people give the Holy Spirit credit, like credit for stuff that the Holy Spirit doesn't do, you should just beware. Okay. Whenever the Holy Spirit works, we always love Jesus more. The Holy Spirit always testifies to Jesus. Always. They are consubstantial, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, with one another. They would not testify to anyone else any more than I would test, like, I mean, I don't know, my wife wouldn't testify, like, yeah, you should go get a girlfriend, right? She wouldn't testify me away from her. The Holy Spirit, in perfect harmony and union with one another, would never testify against the other, right? Jesus, I and the Father are one. Glorify me. I, right? You hear this high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John? So when the Holy Spirit tells you something, I'm not even going to put that in quotes. You measure its faithfulness and its fruitfulness and its truthfulness based on how much glory Jesus gets. Period. So if someone's like, hey, the Holy Spirit told me to do this thing, I just encourage you, in what way is Jesus glorified? In what way do I love and trust Jesus more? And if not, just, I would say, okay, thank you for you, you know, being faithful conduit to the work of the Holy Spirit, but if it doesn't make me love Jesus more, then one of the gifts we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is the discerning of spirits. It may have been a spirit that told you that, probably just wasn't God's spirit. So on the other hand, the rest of you got excited when I said that. You're like, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. But remember, don't quench the work of the spirit. And he gives this overarching theme for all those people in the, working in the spirit, testing the spirits, abstain from every form of evil, any form of malice. Where verse 23, he begins a benediction. It's where we end. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is fruitful, or excuse me, is faithful. He will surely do it. God's people, a healthy church, will trust in God's promises to his people. So if in the course of listing out things that I say you ought to do, like Paul goes, do these things, if in the course of that you find yourself kind of burdened and like weighed down, like I can't, I don't know if I can do all that. Patience with everyone? No retaliation? Oh, snap, that kind of changes your interactions with social media, right? And if you find yourself thinking, this is going to be difficult, this is going to be hard, I want to encourage you what he closes with here. Yes, on your own, you are absolutely right. You won't be able to do it. But thank God that the work that he began in you, according to Paul's word to the Philippians, he is faithful to complete. May God of peace himself, may he be the one that makes you holy. May he be the one that grows you in these ways completely. May your whole spirit and your soul and your body all be kept blameless as we wait for Jesus to come back for us. For he who calls you is faithful he, I love that. I, I mean, I just gave a gauntlet of what leaders, followers, church members, all these faithful, devoted people look like. 
And if you find yourself going like, oh yeah, I'm going to kill it. That's awesome. I got that. You're good for you. But that hits me as a, as a convicting word, doesn't it? Like, pray without ceasing? Like, all the time? And I hope you hear this good news, that we believe when we look at the finished work on the cross, but we also believe when we long for the finished work in our own hearts. He will do it. I know you can't see it right now, but he'll do it. He'll finish it. And now he gives this kind of last and closing remark on what this relationship looks like. He says, brothers, pray for us, right? He just said pray without ceasing. Now he's saying, here's what you can pray for. Be praying for us. After all, he's about to get beat up another 10 times planting churches. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the people who love you. And then he says something that's important. He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Um, Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Again, there's a little, little dichotomy there that if you're not careful, you'll create that isn't biblical. Holy kiss. Half of you who have like no bubble and you love hugging and kissing everybody, you got excited. Don't miss, it's a holy kiss. There's a, there's a reverence and awe, a set-apartness. The affection we have for one another is different than anything you've ever seen. But for the rest of you who have a massive bubble, like you re- that creeps you out right there. You're just like, Bleh. You're like, let's stay holy. Holy means set apart and separate. Let's do that. There's you, there's me, we're holy. It says something powerful, right? Because holy means separate. But you can't kiss someone being separate, can you? And what a powerful picture that we see here in reverence and awe and separateness in a sanctified manner we come together. And our relationships are marked by this. This is what the church looks like. And then he says something that explains why we read books of the Bible, especially the letters. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone like do this to you. I put you under oath. I didn't know you could do that. I need to start doing that more often. (laughs) I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Well, thank God we've been faithful as we walk through this book together such that now we have a relationship with one another, hopefully, that looks different. Now, here's what I know. For some of you, I know you've been hurt by the church, and when you read through these things, you think it's impossible that anyone could do this. But here's what I I want you to see. If you're looking for reasons not to trust people in this, I promise you, you'll always find it. Congratulations, you see someone's flaws. That's literally the first story of the Bible. Well done. The first story of the Bible is that God makes everything perfect, and what do they do? They mess it up. Congratulations, you are at like letter A of the ABCs. It's the most basic thing we learn in the Bible. First story of the Bible, people sin. So if you're just looking for reasons to keep people at a distance, you're always going to find it. And the only reason that has you fired up is because you are oblivious to the obvious sin in your own life. The church isn't supposed to be perfect. I hope that one day you could forgive the people who hurt you whether it was a church or otherwise. But the church isn't supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to make you long for the one who is. The church is a signpost to the one who is perfect. And I know some of you have been deeply hurt. Let me admonish you. The wrong thing that that person did served as a reminder of how much they and even you need Jesus. So give up the witch hunt of looking for awful things in people. You haven't accomplished anything. And for the rest of you, maybe as you like getting to know this church, are you looking for the perfect church? Good luck. Are you looking for a place with no sinners? Is that what you want? So are we. We just believe it's heaven. We don't believe it's here. And here's what this means. Every present reality, even the painful ones, are appetizers for heaven. They're appetizers. Now, I have to define that for you, and I'll leave you with this thought. When I say appetizer, some of you immediately think of six bags of, like, baskets of chips that you eat at a Mexican food restaurant, right? That's not what it is. An appetizer is something that, in a very, very small portion, enhances your appetite for the main course. That's the church. That's the church. 
Don't think like Texas Roadhouse or Olive Garden where you fill up on bread, right? You don't even enjoy the main course. Literally, the, in Italian, the antipasto means the before meal, the before food. It's not really food, right? The word hors d'oeuvre that the French would use, right? It means like outside of the work and outside of the main thing. Don't miss this. The life of the church is just a signpost, a broken and an unsatisfying appetizer for the thing that is to come in Jesus Christ. That's what a church looks like. It's a little glimpse of Jesus' kingdom. And when people fail to do this, we are meant to be reminded that we want him to come back. So if you're mad at the people around you who aren't Jesus, join the club. But recognize you might be afraid to admit the most terrifying fact is that you're not Jesus. And that really scares you. On the other hand, the deep disappointment that you have in the church, even its leaders, may be the result of you trying to get your satisfaction from it rather than from Jesus. And you are dissatisfied with the church in the same way that someone who tried to stuff their face with bread or chips and salsa is dissatisfied with the entree. Sit back. Wait for Jesus. He's the main course. He will surely do this. And the people of God, the church, trusts in God's promise to his people. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your goodness towards us. Uh, We thank you that you would, in this season, show to us and remind us that you are not a God who is up there and out there, but you have come in human form so that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are not alone or abandoned or forsaken. We thank you for the message of this season. You've come to be with us and for us. May that now inform the way we understand the church. May that inform the way we look around at one another, not as trying to strangle the life out of others so that they will be our saviors, but instead in the same miraculous fashion that you came and took on flesh, you are now working in and through the flesh in this room to testify to a greater hope. God, I thank you. I thank you for so many gifts that are represented in this room. I thank you for all the ways that your patience has been demonstrated to me through people in this room. I thank you for the grace that you've shown to me, not just on the cross, but as it's overflowed in the lives of these people towards me. Now, would you begin to work a miracle? Do something magnificent. Restore our hope that you are with us and for us. For some of us, maybe this is just a a mystery to behold. Would you open our eyes to believe and trust that you really have done what you said you would do in Jesus Christ. You've restored us to the Father. For the rest of us, would you begin to even now restore our hope in one another as we look around and we can see the marks of grace in one another. Give us the courage to point out the places and lovingly admonish them towards more Christ-likeness and help us to love and cherish these moments where we get these little glimpses of God being made manifest in the lives of the people around us. We know you'll do this. May we act accordingly. May we trust faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.